Sentire media. In the night between the 3rd and 4th of September 1982, an anonymous hand wrote something on the wall in Via Isidoro Carini. One of the hottest summers in the previous 25 years was just starting to loosen its hold on the city of Palermo. This was one of the most violent summers the city had ever seen. The sign read, Qui è morta la speranza dei palermitani onesti. Here, the hope of the honest people of Palermo has died. Indeed, in that location, at a quarter past nine on the eve of the 3rd of September, three people were killed, their bodies riddled with bullets from AK-47s, shot by mafia affiliates Pino Greco, Antonio Madonia and Calogero Ganci, among others. The bodies were those of the chief of police, a general of the Italian Carabinieri, his young wife and their single bodyguard. Just one, for the policeman, the Carabinieri, knew that if the mafia wanted to kill him, they would do so, no matter how many men he surrounded himself with. Better to keep the body count low, for so many of his men had already given their lives. Funerals are pretty quick after a death in Italy. This one was record-breaking. Almost as if the city of Palermo and the island of Sicily wanted the body gone as fast as possible, as well as the man when he was alive. Upon his death, many men of power in Palermo, in Sicily and in Rome breathed a quiet sigh of relief. At the funeral the next day, the first to place a wreath on the coffin was the governor of the region of Sicily, Mario d'Aquisto. Rita, the daughter of the deceased, angrily threw it off. Her father, who knew the language and customs of the mafia very well, had told her, after a mafia killing, the first to place the wreath on the coffin is he who ordered the killing. It was not exactly true in this case, but most likely close enough. When Cardinal Papalardo, during the ceremony, looked straight at the ministers and dignitaries from Rome and thundered at them, accusing them of doing nothing, the church erupted into applause. The men of power sat in uncomfortable silence. This is the story of the general of the Carabinieri who stood up to the Mafia all of his life and, when it was at its most dangerous, he paid the ultimate price. The Mafia killed him upon order of the boss of bosses, Totò Riina. But it was the state that he had served all of his life that made it possible, isolating him and abandoning him to his destiny. This is the story of anti-mafia martyr, General Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa.
The story of Carlo Alberto dalla Chiesa is very much interconnected with that of the modern Sicilian Mafia, and so we need to head back to post-war Corleone in western Sicily, just over an hour's drive south of Palermo. It is a small rural town, but despite its small size, it is considered the birthplace and capital of the Sicilian Mafia, which at the time was still a very rural organization that went by the name of Honorata Società, the Honoured Society. The Second World War had just finished, and the Mafia had taken a hard hit from the Mussolini regime, but in the end it had survived. Mostly because, as per his usual, Mussolini was very big on the repressive side, but not so hot on really understanding the phenomenon and trying to get at its roots. The head boss during the war years was Calogero Lobue, and in 1945 he felt ready to pass on his leadership role. In a surprise move, rather than handing over to Vincent Collura, who had been brought back especially from the United States to take over, Lobue nominated Michele Navarra, a doctor who came to be known as Upatri Nostru, our father. Navarra divided up Corleone into two spheres of influence, north and south, and Colura, instead of becoming the boss of bosses, found himself running the southern part. Something that would continue to cause trouble for Navarra, as the Americani felt they had been cheated out of their inheritance. However, this political play at the top would all be swept aside, for a younger generation was waiting in the wings and they would do away with both Navarra and Collura. Among these was Luciano Ligio, who would be the one to put an end to both men. Ligio, who was known as Lucianeddu, but never in his face because it meant little Luciano, was known for his particular cruelty. It was Ligio's name, along with those of Bernardo Provenzano and Salvatore Riina, a.k.a. Who would become synonymous with the 20th century Sicilian mafia and tied to high level killings until almost the end of the century? One of the hallmarks of the Corleone mafia was their absolute obsession with omerta, the code of silence of Cosa Nostra, which meant that no one heard anything, no one saw anything, and most of all, no one spoke. Journalists dealing with the topic like to mention an anecdote in this sense. During a funeral, a woman, dressed in black in mourning, at the head of the procession is in tears. However, when asked who the deceased is, she answers, Perché? Morto ci fu. Why? Has somebody died? Despite the Mafia's success in imposing their code of silence, there was a young carabinieri, a captain, who did manage to get some people talking, to start to find cracks in the wall of Omerta. The carabinieri are basically one of the two main Italian police forces on a national level. They are actually a part of the military, answering to the Ministry of Defence, while the Polizia di Stato, a civil police, answer to the Ministry of the Interior. Despite this distinction, 
their responsibilities overlap in many areas, and the Carabinieri also have jurisdiction over civilians as well as the military. The young captain in question was not a Sicilian, but from far away Piedmont. He had the gift of managing to convince people to talk, not with force or with threats, but with his words. The man in question was, of course, Carlo Alberto dalla Chiesa. He had been a military man all of his life. During the Second World War, after the armistice of 1943, rather than join the new Nazi-controlled puppet regime of Mussolini, Dalla Chiesa joined the resistance and used his military skills to save many Jews, partisans and English soldiers. At the end of the war in 1945, he married the love of his life, Dora Fabbo. She would die four years before her husband of a heart attack, yet Carlo Alberto continued to write her in his personal diary until his death. He graduated in law and political science at the University of Bari in Puglia, southern Italy. He was first posted to Sicily, precisely to Corleone, in 1949. The year before, a union representative, Placido Rizzotto, had disappeared and the investigation was still on. It is in this period that Dalla Chiesa started to understand Cosa Nostra and started to make a dent in what seemed like impenetrable armour. The investigation in particular into the disappearance of Rizzotto led to the incrimination of Vincent Collura, Pasquale Crescione and Luciano Liggio, who was by now in hiding. After the trial had started, Captain Dalla Chiesa was urgently transferred away, although he failed to see where the urgency lay. In the end, all of those involved were acquitted. They went back on their confessions and the main witness, a 12-year-old shepherd boy called Giuseppe Letizia, was taken out of the picture. His father had found him suffering from a high fever and when he was taken to hospital, he told those around him that he had witnessed the killing of Rizzotto. The head doctor treated the boy with an injection. In truth, it was the injection that killed him. Who had administered it? None other than the head physician and boss of Cosa Nostra, Michele Navarra. Without the interference of Dalla Chiesa, the mafia had a bit more room for manoeuvre, and eventually Luciano Liggio thought to thank Navarra for his cover-up by killing him and getting him out of the way in 1958. Dalla received a medal for his work, but the late 50s and early 60s were a time of great frustration, humiliation and constant transfers. The head of the army didn't and never would like Dalla Chiesa. He was inconvenient to have in the Carabinieri, unpredictable. This hostility would be explained in part in the late 60s when news broke that the heads of the Carabinieri were involved in a far-right-wing plot, the Piano Solo, to overthrow the government. There was no room in such a plot for an anti-fascist partisan such as Dalla Chiesa. In the early 60s, the mafia was racked by infighting that saw many end up in prison, and in 1963 the Mafia faced its first real existential danger. 
Indeed, it was in the 60s, thanks also to the book Il Giorno della Civetta, The Day of the Owl, published by Leonardo Sciascia, that the idea of the existence of the mafia became a public issue. It was in 1963 that the first anti-mafia commission was set up in Parliament. Many mafiosi fled abroad, to South America in particular. This was also proof of a very important lesson. The mafia can and must be defeated. It takes effort, sacrifice and continuity. These elements did not come together in the 60s and Cosa Nostra survived. As the mafia came back in the late 60s, so did now Colonel Carlo Alberto della Chiesa in 1966. Cosa Nostra was spreading. It was no longer an only rural phenomenon, but it was now consolidating its hold on cities and in particular the regional seat of Sicily, Palermo. Dalla Chiesa got to work with a vengeance, once again putting all his effort into understanding the Mafia. He required detailed reports from his carabinieri in all areas of the island, compiling reports and detailed maps, as well as studying the family trees of the Cosa Nostra affiliates. He showed the Parliamentary Anti-Mafia Commission his findings. Document 635, for example, showed a map with a series of red circles around Palermo, 28 of them one for each mafia clan or family, and each one connected with a line to a triangle showing an area of interest or expansion. Another map was crowded with coloured pins, blue for theft, red for robberies, and black for murder. Interestingly, there were no pins around Corleone. No crime could be committed there unless the mafia wanted it to be. When the colonel left the island again in 1973, hundreds of mafiosi had been put into prison and they all remembered the name of Dalla Chiesa. He would soon be made a general, yet he continued to be ostracised by the high command and a lot of the political world. Once again, his transfer came at the right time for the mafia. In the 70s, Cosa Nostra was no longer intent with its expansion in organised crime and business. Indeed, this is the decade in which the Mafia wished to be on the same level as the regional government. This is the decade in which Cosa Nostra started to prepare its assault on the state. In the year 1970, the Mafia placed one of its men as mayor of Palermo, Vito Ciancimino a member of the Christian Democrat Party. Luckily, the scandal was enough for him to have to resign a few months later. The head of the police in Palermo, Angelo Vicari, declared that it was a scandal and Luigi Cattane, head of the Anti-Mafia Commission, declared it a challenge to Palermo and to the commission itself. However, the damage was done. The mechanism of the assignment of public tenders was now in their hands. The businesses in Palermo, the restaurants, the hotels, the farms, and so on, were in the hands of Cosa Nostra. 
Perhaps the most lucrative business was construction, and with Chanchimino's slogan of Palermo is beautiful, let's make it more so, parks and historical buildings were torn down to make room for concrete monsters. Not because housing and offices were in dire need, but to feed the greed of organised crime. This was known as Il Sacco di Palermo, the Sack of Palermo. On an interesting side note, some of the money, thanks to the intervention of a lawyer called Marcello Dell'Utri, ended up in building projects far up north in Milan, particularly a project called Milano 2, Milan 2, owned by a young entrepreneur called Silvio Berlusconi. The money coming in piques the greed of the criminals, and internal war starts again, as well as that against the institutions and the press. In September of 1970, investigative anti-mafia journalist Mauro De Mauro was kidnapped, never to be seen again, while on the 5th of May 1971, Pietro Scaglione was the first magistrate to be killed in the post-war period. However, in all of this, the attention of the nation was elsewhere. Indeed, the latter part of the 70s in Italy are known as the peak of the Anni di Piombo, the years of lead, the years of far-right and far-left terrorism. This is another dark chapter of Italian history, which deserves its own space and will have it in time. We would just say that Carlo Alberto della Chiesa is credited with being the man that defeated terrorism in Italy. His methods, applauded by some and considered by others, an attempt on the constitution itself. In this period, a personal tragedy hit Dalla Chiesa, the death of his wife Dora on the 19th of February 1978. As we mentioned, from that day on, he would write to her every evening in his diary until his own death. As the 70s gave way to the 80s, the Sicilian Mafia seemed invincible, untouchable. On the 6th of January 1980, they killed Pier Santi Mattarella, at the time the regional governor of Sicily and brother of Sergio Mattarella, our president of the republic, today. The government did not know what to do, and perhaps the government did not wish to do anything, but they had to be seen to be doing something. Once again, Carlo Alberto dalla Chiesa was sent in. This time, it was very clear to him that it was a suicide mission. He wrote to the Italian Prime Minister, Giovanni Spadolini, asking for guarantees that he would have the government's full support. He was met with silence. He also met with prominent Christian Democrat politician Giulio Andreotti, considered to be one of the Italian politicians that most benefited from the Mafia. He told Andreotti that if he accepted to return to Palermo, he would have to damage the interests of some of the members of the Christian Democrats close to Andreotti himself. Despite the evident lack of support, Dalla Chiesa headed to Palermo. 
The letter he wrote to his children on the plane on the way down was almost like a last will and testament. He even told them that he had divided up the family jewellery. He wrote those lines on the 30th of April 1982, the day in which another anti-mafia politician and union representative, Pio La Torre, was killed. Dalla Chiesa, now the prefetto, the prefect or the head of the police, was at the funeral the next day, near the governor of Sicily, Mario D'Aquisto, who, along with the mayor of Palermo, Nello Martellucci, was highly critical of the general. The refrain is the same. He gave Sicily a bad reputation, considered it an island full of criminals. How dare he besmirch the name of all those good people? They said he wanted to be like Mori, the prefect during the fascist period. There was a debate on how much power he should really have, and so on. By then, Dalla understood the language and the customs of the mafia very well with people's actions almost following a sort of invisible script at times, the way they moved, the looks they gave. He did not like what he saw, and soon understood that he was surrounded by men of Cosa Nostra. When he drank coffee, he would wait for the others to drink first, just in case, and when he noticed that his desk was right in front of a window that looked upon a perfect hiding place in the building across the street for snipers, he had the desk moved. Despite all of this, the general got to work, both as a policeman, but also in the most important battle, the one for hearts and minds. He went and talked to students, workers, union representatives. He tried to expose the Mafia's greatest lie. That what they offered as favours that tied you to the organisation were really rights that you should be guaranteed and free to exercise. He moved around alone to show he had no fear. His work started to provoke a response. He started to receive letters of encouragement and of people denouncing the injustices around them. He was not completely without supporters, Sicilian Cardinal Salvatore Papalardo, for example, publicly applauded him, as did many local priests and some political members of the Socialist and Communist parties. It was not enough. In Rome, the Sicilian Christian Democrats Salvatore Lima and Mario D'Aquisto were elected to prominent positions in the party hierarchy on a national level. Salvatore Lima, known as L'Amico degli Amici, the friend of friends, would be known as one of the main go-betweens for the mafia and public administration. He would pay with his life when Cosa Nostra felt he had double-crossed them in 1992. On the 7th of August, the government fell on a bill that attempted to increase taxes for oil barons. Many Christian Democrats, despite the fact that they supported the government, voted against it. Meanwhile, Palermo was a hostage to the unbearable summer heat and violence as the war against the institutions crossed with an internal power struggle. In June of that year, there was a killing every 72 hours. In July, every 48 hours. In August, every 12, two killings a day. With one of the last killings, 
also came an ominous message to the press. Operation Dalla Chiesa is almost finished. Almost. In the midst of all this, on the 10th of July, the general married Emanuela Setti Carraro, 30 years his junior, perhaps in an attempt, at least in his private life, to feel less lonely and less abandoned. On a more general level, he tried to get the northern newspapers interested in the Sicilian question. In August, he reached out to journalist Giorgio Bocca, one of his most ardent critics during the terrorism years, for an interview on the 10th of August. The content is almost prophetic. He tells Bocca that the mafia can also kill the powerful, but only when they become isolated. He looked for support wherever he could find it, even reaching out to the American consul in Palermo, Rudolf Jones. He told Jones a story of when he, Dalla Chiesa, was in Sicily in the late 60s. One of his carabinieri had received death threats from a local mafia boss. Dalla Chiesa had gone with his man to the town of the boss and spent the day there walking with him arm in arm. Towards evening, the boss had come home and both policemen stared directly into his eyes as he passed. The message was clear. We know who you are. We know what you've threatened. And the head of police stands by his men. Dalla Chiesa told the consul, that is what I need now. Someone to walk arm in arm with me. Towards the end of August, he went on a deserved holiday and followed the debate on the powers to be attributed to him, hoping for a long-awaited sign from the higher authorities. On the 3rd of September, he and his wife were back in Palermo. Towards evening, she joined him. They made a fake reservation in another restaurant from the one they were going to. He never knew who was listening. The general and his wife got into an Autobianchi A112, a small, non-imposing car. Emanuela was driving. Their single bodyguard, Domenico Russo, followed behind in another vehicle. At a quarter past nine, as the two vehicles entered via Isidoro Carini, a motorcycle drew up next to the car driven by Russo. Behind the driver of the motorbike was Pino Greco, armed with an AK-47. He opened fire on Russo. At the same time, a BMW 518, driven by Antonio Madonia and bearing Calogero Ganci, also toting an AK-47, pulled ahead of the Dalla Chiesa's car and riddled the windshield with bullets killing the two instantly and making the car swerve and hit a parked Fiat. After the impact, Greco got off the motorcycle to make sure the deed had been done. The bodies of Carlo Alberto and Emanuela had been filled with 30 bullets. Antonio Russo would die 12 days later in hospital. The motorcycle and BMW then disappeared into the night. Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa, the man who had defeated terrorism, the man for whom hundreds of mafiosi were in prison, the man for whom men of power involved with Cosa Nostra slept uneasily, was gone. 
The first to arrive back at the prefect's lodgings was a man whom Dalla Chiesa himself had fired some time before. His excuse was that he needed a sheet to cover the bodies. Why was it necessary to go all the way back the ten-minute drive for a sheet? This was the first unusual element. Other unidentified men came and went. Were they carabinieri in plain clothes? Government representatives? Men of the secret service? Or men of the mafia? Carlo Alberto's brother was the first of the family to arrive, but he, on the other hand, was not let in immediately. When he finally was, he went to the general's safe in the bedroom, but the key was nowhere to be found. It reappeared on the 11th of September, over a week after the assassination. When the safe was opened, it was found to contain only an empty green box. No one knows what had been in the safe. What is known is that the general had told his young wife that if something happened to him, she should go and get the content of the safe immediately. Therefore, it was very likely that there had been something more than an empty green box. Some suspect that there were documents from the kidnapping of Christian Democrat President Aldo Moro who had been kidnapped and killed by the far-left terrorist group, the Red Brigades, in 1979. The documents supposedly may have incriminated men as high up as Giulio Andreotti. On the 5th of September, a Sicilian newspaper received a phone call. The caller stated, The Dalla Chiesa operation is concluded. The Mafia had won their battle against the state. The war, however, continued, and perhaps this time they had gone too far. The son of Pio La Torre, the politician and union rep killed on the day Dalla Chiesa returned to Palermo for his last experience there, said that it always takes the state two important killings before it gets moving. La Torre in this case was the first, and Dalla Chiesa the second. On the 13th of September, with surprising speed for the Italian government, Law 416 was passed introducing the crime of Mafia Association. There are still some people today who would have us believe that the Mafia does not exist. Since 1982, the Italian law has said otherwise. The law also introduced the possibility for the state to enter into possession of mafia wealth and lands, and since 1997, these assets can be used for social purposes by associations. The law was an important tool, particularly for two anti-mafia magistrates who had started their own struggle against the mafia and against the men in power who would obstruct their work, Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa was killed exactly 38 years ago as I release this episode. His memory is fading, perhaps also because worse was to come. The mafias are alive and active, although the Sicilian Cosa Nostra has been a bit more quiet in the last few decades, perhaps eclipsed by the more sensationalist Neapolitan Camorra. 
However, as I will always do in this particular series of podcasts, I would like to leave you with a certainty. The Mafia can be defeated, and you can actually do your part. That is why, for these episodes, I won't be asking you to support the show A History of Italy, but to head over to the Libera website. That's L-I-B-E-R-A dot I-T. Libera is an association that promotes an anti-mafia culture of legality with cultural activities, summer camps and educational programs. They also help to coordinate the lands and assets seized from the mafia and you can get some great products produced by the associations using those lands, such as excellent Sicilian reds, for example. I'll be linking to the donation and gadget pages of the association in the show notes. This series is written and presented by me, Mike Corradi, as a part of A History of Italy podcast. You can get in touch, hello, at ahistoryofitaly.com or have a look at our site at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. The music is kindly offered by Astrobanda and you can look them up on Facebook at Astro La Banda. That's A-S-T-R-O-L-A-B-A-N-D-A. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, fanculo alla mafia. podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.